Hi, and welcome to Wealthy On. I'm James Conner. And before I introduce you to our guest, I have one ask, and that is subscribe to our channel, WealthyOn.com. And also hit that notification button to be kept up to date on future events. We release interviews five days a week, and we have some amazing speakers coming up in the coming days, all of which will help you navigate these financial markets. And now I want to introduce you to Brian Sponheimer. Brian is a portfolio manager and auto analyst at Gabilly Funds, and Gabilly is an asset manager based in Rye, New York, and manages over $29 billion in assets. Brian is going to take us through the auto industry and the health of the auto industry and determine if now is a good time to buy a car. Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Before we do the deep dive on the auto industry, I want to get your thoughts on the broader economy and if there's anything that concerns you about the current economy or if there's anything that keeps you up at night. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I guess our job is to worry here um, about you know any and everything that can uh, that can get in the way of uh, economic progress and what and what can help the, the stock market. But um, I think broadly speaking, the the economy is is in a decent glide path right now. You know, on January 31st, you had Fed Chair Powell stating that uh, the Fed needs to see more evidence uh, that that falling inflation is sustainable. I think we've seen some economic indicators show that an economic acceleration is in fact underway, um, which puts some hope that uh, um, the Fed will start to uh, reduce interest rates in the, 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 the middle to the back half of this year. Obviously, as, a, as an auto analyst, you know that one of the things that we're always worried about is vehicle affordability and the interest rate that consumers are paying on their, um, on their loans um, is in some ways uh, directly correlated to uh, the Federal Reserve, the Fed Funds rate. So, um, you know, it's, it's somewhat encouraging. But right now, you know, vehicle affordability, whether it's across uh, new vehicles, used vehicles, um, is, uh, uh, is what's, what's first and foremost on my mind. And um, I think we'll probably talk about that as we, as we get into, uh, into the next half hour, 40 minutes or so. But, you know, I, I would say, um, thinking about the economy, employment seems to be fairly tight right now. Um, if inflation is sticking anywhere, it's in labor, um, which uh, is good from a consumer standpoint. The consumer is, uh, is earning more. Um, it could certainly uh, uh, bite into corporate profits a little bit. Um, but I, I think, you know, we're looking at an economy where uh, consumers are not necessarily worried about losing their job because another one's right around the corner. Um, I think uh, affordability is definitely something that is a factor in um, whether it's housing, autos, anything from a durable uh, goods uh, category is concerned. Um, but broadly speaking, we're in a, a relatively healthy environment here. So let's examine the auto industry from a top-down approach. I want to determine just how important this industry is to the U.S. economy. Maybe you can just take us through how important it is to the GDP and how many people it employs. That's great. So uh, the the U.S. economy, uh, the, the auto industry is about five, about a, a one trillion dollar industry. It's about uh, about five percent of the economy. Um, and if you think about all of the components of that ecosystem um, throughout a vehicle's life cycle, it is everything from not only the uh, automakers themselves. Um, in the U.S., the Fords, the GMs, the Stellantis's, but and also the foreign automakers that are here, whether it's BMW, Honda, et cetera. Um, and then there are there are hundreds of um, what are known as Tier One suppliers. Those are the 
suppliers that are directly to the auto industry or the, or the automakers rather. And then there are tens of thousands of tier two suppliers. So, that, so uh, thinking about um, you know, all the systems and subsystems that go into making um, what is outside of an airplane, the most complex piece of machinery that uh, you or I will get in. Um, it, is, it is an industry that just from a, a manufacturing standpoint has, has tens of thousands of participants from a company perspective. And then just thinking about the ecosystem of how those vehicles are sold through dealer networks, um, about 16 million cars are gonna get sold this year in the US, that's a, that's a fairly typical year. Um, about 40 million used vehicles will get sold. So there's about 18,000 or some 17,000 or so dealers in the U.S. that sell new vehicles. Those are franchise um, auto dealers. There's about 35,000 used vehicle dealers in the U.S. Um, and you know, really thinking about how uh, how integral um, those auto dealers are to local uh, local economies and and how integral those um, those auto suppliers are to local economies. It's, it's a it's a massive industry in the U.S. It's an important one, and it's one that um, you know really drove economic growth and prosperity for the better part of the last 50 years for for the U.S. And just to summarize, you said 16 million cars will be sold in 2024. That's right. That's um, somewhere in the range of 15.5 to 16 million. That's roughly flat to uh, to up from uh, from 2023. And I know the last few years have been somewhat distorted because of the pandemic, but how would those numbers compare to before the pandemic? Uh, so for the better part of the decade prior to 2020, the U.S. ran somewhere in the range of 16 to 17 million vehicles. Um, I think a few factors uh, drove uh, that, that range to be a little bit higher than where it's going to be this year. We can talk about that. Vehicle affordability being um, a major component of that with you know, really a decade of of zero percent interest rates playing a major role there, um, I think too. Um, and one of the things that we can talk about is, is inventory on dealer lots. So uh, prior to uh, 2020, there were roughly uh, 3.7 million units of uh, inventory available on dealer lots. Um, what happened during the pandemic was that um, April and May of 2020, uh, effectively zero cars in, in North America got produced, uh, really just a few thousand. Um, and inventory went from 3.7 million units, uh, eventually down to about 900,000 units. Um, so about a 75% decline in, in, uh, in, in the U.S. And really that was, that was true across all of North America. And what happened during that time period is that um, dealers and automakers um, were able to charge significantly more for the vehicles that they actually had on hand. And they learned that the uh, per unit profitability rising as much as it did, they actually generated more uh, returns from a profit standpoint than they had been when they were selling more vehicles. So um, as we have started to re, um, uh, get get industry production back up to a level where uh, supply chains are not really the, the mess that they've been, um, really everyone in the ecosystem is realizing they don't need to produce as much as they did before and they can generate uh, greater profitability on a per unit basis just by having uh, a little less inventory than they had before. And we're at about 2.4 million units back on dealer lots. And again, that's down from 3.7 million units uh, prior to, uh, to the pandemic. So it's a long-winded answer to a, a very short question. We, were, we used to sell um, a, few, uh, a few hundred thousand to another million or so more vehicles 
uh, prior to 2020. Obviously, we've, re we've recovered back almost to where, where we were before. So it sounds like the American consumer really got screwed during the pandemic by the automakers. Well, um, if you, uh, it, it, it depends on, on, you know, that definition. Um, I think, you know, it was simply a supply demand equation where, um, you know, consumers that wanted, that desperately wanted a new vehicle um, had to pay more. Uh, and if you didn't necessarily need to buy new, um, you could have uh, at least initially chosen the used vehicle market. Now, used vehicle prices also went through the roof during the pandemic. So, um, you know, from a supply demand perspective, it was uh, it was a, uh, a difficult time if you were really in need of buying a, uh, a, a new vehicle or, or, or a used vehicle for that matter. And when you were talking about those inventory numbers, th those are new cars. Is that correct? correct? Yeah. Right. And so why don't we just touch on the used car market? I think you said there's 40 million sales. Yeah. Last year. Yeah. About 35 to 40 million uh, used units get sold every year. Clearly, that's a function of, um, in, in part, how many new vehicles get sold. So one thing we're seeing right now is that the supply of available zero to four-year-old four um, used vehicles is, is very low. Um, that's based on the amount of vehicles that were produced in 2020, 2021, and 2022. So you think about an industry that gets a lot of its vehicles from um, the off-lease market. Leasing really dried up during the pandemic. Um, and because of that, um, that supply-demand imbalance, uh, dealers are really hesitant to, uh, to sell used cars uh, for anything less than the maximum amount that they could get for them because they didn't really have to sell those, those units. Um, so, you know, you've got an industry that um, is, uh, is healing a little bit, but the used vehicle market is generally a little bit more stable than the new market, if you think about it, um, in times of... Uh, in times where the, where the broader economy isn't quite as robust as it, as it, uh, as it can be, uh, used vehicles are a good uh, substitute for buying new. So you start, you tend to see a, a little bit of a um, lower amplitude uh, as it relates to the cyclicality of, of the used market. And it makes it makes for a, a very good market from, from an investability standpoint from, uh, for, uh, for uh, what we do. And I just want to expand on that a little, a little bit from, okay, if you're an automaker, where are the margins better? Are they better with new cars or with used cars? And if you're a consumer, where do you get a better deal? Buying a new car or buying a used car? So once from, from an automaker's perspective, once that vehicle gets sold to a dealer, they, they don't have any, uh, they have no more claim on the, on that vehicle. So it's really um, the profit on the newer, the used cars is really at the dealer level. Um, the per unit profitability from a dollar amount is greater on a new car than it is on a used car. Just think about a, a brand new car is going to be significantly more expensive than a used car. Um, so the per dollar amount will be, uh, will be better. Um, the profit margins on a used vehicle are typically better than they are uh, on a new car. And we're talking about a typical period, um, not necessarily the one that we've been in the last, the last couple of years. Um, but if, um, what had all, what had, what had traditionally been a market where um, a, a used car dealer would have greater, um, uh, greater information as to uh, the quality of the, the used vehicle that they were selling uh, and be able to generate um, a, a greater margin on that vehicle selling a used car to a consumer. 
Um, it's one of the reasons why the used car market got such a bad reputation for the better part of the last 50 years. So consumers always felt like they were getting ripped off uh, uh, buying a used car. There's a lot that's changed about that, which I think is really positive, and we can talk about that a little bit, um, about pricing transparency and consumers knowing exactly what they're getting, uh, certainly more than, the, than, than they would have in the past. Um, there are some leaders in the industry right now that are um, – really doing a good job from a best practice standpoint there. Um, and they're gaining share, um, the, the CarMax of, of the world. So, um, you know, the used market is, has certainly evolved quite a bit um, over the last 20 years, but really uh, accelerated within the last, um, the last decade. No, I do agree. I, I always feel I get ripped off when I buy. It doesn't matter if it's a new car or a used car. I always right. feel like I'm getting ripped off. But before we go down that road, I want to uh, just clarify one thing, what you said about margins. So when I go into a dealership and I buy a new car, what are the typical margins for that dealer? Yeah. So, uh, you know, on a, on a, mar a margin on a, on a new car um, without, you know, any of the real exogenous factors that we've seen over the, the better part of the last um, few years, are usually in the five to 6% range. It could be as low as four and a half percent, depending on the, the, the automaker. Um, and the, the brand and used margins are usually in the, the six to seven percent range can be as high as eight or nine percent. Um, dealers are terrific businesses, um, not necessarily because they um, make so much money selling new and used cars, but it's, it's, it's the attached factor from the parts and service business that really drive uh, what a, a dealer's profitability. Um, you know, dealers want to they are they are in the the selling business, not not the holding business. So, typically speaking, when they when they get a, a piece of inventory in, um, they want to get that uh, that vehicle back out the door. And when you look at a high end car, let's just say a Mercedes or a BMW, uh, I'm assuming the margins are far better on that than they would be on say a, a Ford or a GM product. Is yes. that the safe assumption? That that's right. You know, you ha you have a um, not only is the is the profit dollar amount going to be bigger um, at that level. You've got a consumer that is less likely to really um, battle uh, from a price perspective. And um, so that they're more willing to, to pay a little bit more. And in terms of the longevity of cars now, cars can last a long time, but what's the average age or, or the average number of years that consumers keep cars for? So there's about 200 and just under 290 million cars on the road in the U S um, there's about 1.3 trillion on, on the road uh, around the world. And uh, in the U.S., the actual average age of those 287 million cars is 12.7 years. So that's the oldest on record. And that's for a variety of factors, uh, not the least of which is that cars are just simply getting built better than they ever have uh, before. You've also, and we've seen step changes in the past uh, from, from an aging perspective, but um, a uh, the the materials used in a car now are significantly more durable than they were, say, 30, 40 years ago. You have non-corrosive metals, certainly a lot less rusting that goes on in vehicles. So, um, you know, consumers are holding on to their cars longer. And then the, the technology in the vehicle is, is, is iterative to a degree, and it, that's allowing consumers to, uh, to be able to, to hold on to, to the vehicles a little longer as well. Man, I can't get over that 12 years. That is a long time. I, I typically keep mine for five or six years, or I try to anyway. I guess it all depends on mileage. Right. Well, a, a typical car, um, you know, lasts 
17, 18 years and we'll have three to four owners. You have that first owner that owns it for the first, um, the first five years until it comes off a of warranty. Someone thereafter will buy it at 55,000 miles or so um, and, and drive it for another, uh, another six or seven years. And then someone else will take it and, and drive it, um, so to speak, until the wheels fall off. Um, it, it actually creates a, a very healthy uh, automotive aftermarket. You know, we have followed the industry for the better part of the last, um, uh, well, really since our inception 40, 47 years ago, 48 years ago. Um, this will be the 48th year that we've, we've had a, an automotive aftermarket conference in Las Vegas in November, uh, where we bring in a lot of industry leaders uh, of companies such as AutoZone and O'Reilly um, and um, some of the, the, the larger auto dealers. And, you know, thinking about servicing those 285 million or 290 million vehicles um, and, and how steady that industry is relative to say a new vehicle dealer selling uh, into a 17 million unit market. Um, it, it, that has been a, um, an area where, where we've had a lot of success in, in finding really good ideas from an investment standpoint. So let's talk about some of the changes happening within the auto industry. It's being disrupted on many fronts. You have EVs, autonomous driving, ride sharing. So I want to discuss these topics. And why don't we just start with EVs? That seems to be the biggest change in the industry. But They've exploded in recent years. In 2020, global sales for EVs was around 3 million. And then by 2023, I believe the number was around 15 million globally. But maybe you can just touch on that because it does seem like the number or the growth or the rate of change within the EV industry is starting to slow. But maybe you can just give us your views on that and what it means to the traditional car market. So um, I, I think it's important to, to think about the EV growth in terms of the geographies where that, that growth is really taking place. So um, clearly China has been a leader in electric vehicle uh, adoption. Uh, it's clearly been funded through uh, subsidies by uh, the Chinese government and it's led to uh, really a massive expansion, not only by, um, well, by, by Tesla entering the market, but also um, BYD is, is, is the, the largest uh, electric vehicle manufacturer in the world, uh, it's, Chinese, uh, it's a Chinese automaker. Um, we've seen massive um, changes to emissions regulations in, uh, in Europe causing um, um, greater adoption there and the use cases for electric vehicles are, are probably a little bit better um, in Europe where consumers aren't driving quite as much. Um, in the U.S., uh, electric vehicles were about 8% of uh, new vehicle sales uh, this past year. Clearly, Tesla has been at the, the uh, forefront of EV adoption for the better part of the last decade. You're now seeing newer models come out from, uh, from your traditional automakers, really up and down the, uh, the price spectrum, everything from $35,000 models from GM and Ford to upwards of um, $150,000 models from the Mercedes of the world. And uh, what we've seen is that a lot of the uh, demand from uh, early adopters has already taken place. And we're entering this period now where in order for greater EV adoption in the U.S. to take place, um, the product needs to not just be an electric vehicle by name, 
um, it, the vehicle is going to have to look and feel like the SUV and truck market that the, that the U.S. market really is. And I think we're in this um, uh, this time period where those models are just now getting rolled out. And right now, electric vehicles are still more expensive on a uh, on a comparative basis relative to internal combustion engines. That that's come down quite a bit, and we're getting near parity. Um, but on an apples to apples basis, an EV is going to be more expensive. Um, we have to uh, have a, a, uh, a rollout of electric vehicle charging infrastructure that um, takes away some of the range anxiety that consumers have about uh, electric vehicle adoption. And uh, just thinking about how vehicles are going to get charged, um, roughly speaking, about 50% of U.S. households don't have garages. so. Um, the ability to charge your vehicle overnight um, is uh, is something that um, um, that is slowing that adoption right now. Uh, so we're in an inter interesting time as it relates to EV. Um, I, I think you're going to see hybrids uh, come back into the vanguard a little bit more. I, you will clearly see a, a a greater electric future. It's just a question of uh, of when. Um, I think though, and this is really in the way that, that we've approached it, um, you know, we're measuring uh, progress on this in in five-year increments as opposed to uh, the whole world going uh, or the whole U.S. getting to uh, EVs by uh, by 2030. Yeah, it almost sounds like an impossibility. But you make an interesting point too about the cost to maintain these. Hertz recently announced that it was discontinuing EV rentals. And it's going to be selling 20,000 cars um, and then replacing those with your traditional cars. But a lot of that had to do with the cost to maintain them. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before, there, there are about 17,000 dealers in the U.S. that help to maintain the zero to five-year-old car population. Um, Tesla rolled out a um, a really an ownership model that didn't use um, dealerships. It was it's direct sales. Um, they have fewer service locations. And I think one thing that we have found is that when electric vehicles have uh, service and maintenance issues, that the interval time period to fix those vehicles is, is quite a bit longer. Uh, it has to do with parts availability, has to do with um, uh, with a lack of uh, supply of properly trained transit uh, uh, technicians, and um, and the repairs are more costly. Um, so as it relates to Hertz, and I think it's worth mentioning, um, Hertz bought uh, upwards of uh, uh, of a tenth of their their U.S. fleet in electric vehicles. So we're talking about fifty thousand cars, um, and um, in that time period, Tesla decided to cut prices um, by about um, by about a full third on new vehicles. And so, a vehicle that used to cost sixty thousand dollars is now going to cost forty thousand dollars or so. Um, think about what that did to the uh, the residual value of uh, Hertz's fleet. And so, you know, they've had massive issues as it's as it has related to. Um, depreciation of their their fleet and um, what they had originally expected to sell those vehicles for um, versus what they they're actually going to be able to sell them for. So 
you know, it's really a, it's a two-pronged problem. The, uh, the units that they had, and if you think about a rental car company, they're really an asset manager, right? They, they buy physical assets and then they, they have to get them out. Um, those, those, um, those assets aren't generating any, any revenue for them um, while they are, uh, they're waiting on, on service. Uh, so they had an issue with uh, those vehicles from a, uh, a dependability perspective, given that the repairs cost more and they took longer to do. Uh, and at the same time, those vehicles were depreciating uh, at a rate that was uh, faster than originally anticipated because prices kept coming. Uh, Tesla kept um, um, cutting price on on their on the new vehicles that they were selling. Yeah, very interesting points, and I never really looked at it like that before. But I guess that also Tesla's um, aggressiveness also had a big impact on other OEMs like Ford and GM that were trying to uh, push out these EVs too. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we had uh, we had seen some some fairly promising models come out from you know Ford in particular with the F one fifty Lightning um, that really stood alone in the industry until recently as far as being the only electric pickup truck that was available, but also the Mustang Mach E. And so, um, you know, that was really kind of a direct competitor to the Tesla Model Three and Model Y. And so, when Tesla started cutting um, cutting price. Um, clearly a direct impact there that um, um, that I think a lot of the industry is, is still coping with. In Tesla recently released their numbers. Maybe you can just give us your thoughts on what they said. Yeah, a really interesting quarter. Um, Tesla right now is uh, sort of between growth periods, according to the company. They have um, really four models that they sell, the model S, the Model X, the Model 3, and the Model Y, um, and they've been out for a few years. Um, they they think that they're going to have a, a, a smaller, uh, more affordable vehicle available uh, for consumption or, or for sale at the end of 2025. Um, Tesla's uh, track record as it relates to hitting time period targets hasn't been necessarily uh, the, uh, the best. Uh, so, they uh, they produced and sold about 1.8 million uh, 1.8 million units uh, this past year. Um, I think the broader street is looking for roughly 2.1 million units. So you know you're talking about a growth rate for the, the, the company that that's less than 10%. Um, and the question really is for investors as they think about Tesla stock, um, what are they willing to pay for that growth? How much? of Tesla's market capitalization should be attributable to some of the other potential industries that Tesla could enter, some of the, the AI or autonomous uh, solutions that um, they could potentially be a, a major part of. Um, and I think that that's something that, that um, growth investors are really, uh, really struggling with, with right now. Um, so when the stock's down roughly 30%. Um, over the first you know, 35 days of the year. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's going to be a really interesting year as it relates to Tesla. We're value investors. So uh, Tesla, while uh, being a company that we, we have a uh, real close eye on, is not necessarily one that, um, you know, are, are where, where we look to for uh, investment opportunities. As, as I mentioned before, when we spend a lot more time uh, with the dealers um, and with the automotive aftermarket, where cash flows can be uh, a little bit more, um, predictable and where some M&A opportunities may be uh, 
uh, really fitting into our, our own methodology as, as investors here. And so that's a good overview of what's happening with EVs. But what about autonomous driving? How is this impacting the industry and also ride sharing? Yeah, so uh, from an autonomous standpoint, I think uh, a lot of the exuberance and enthusiasm that maybe was there five or six years ago has really uh, taken a backseat to some of the broader obstacles that uh, is really one of the, the most amazing uh, engineering challenges that, I, that anyone has ever seen. Um, what we have now um, across most automakers is um, what's known as level two autonomy or level two plus autonomy, where you can get onto a highway and then go hands-free. Um, this is um, the Tesla FSD, which was previously called full self-driving, um, Super Cruise out of GM, and there are, there are various other names across the Mercedes BMW um, and, and other automakers that are, um, that are uh, able to, to have uh, level two plus autonomy. When we're thinking about the pure, um, purely autonomous solutions that are being explored by Waymo and by Cruise. Um, what they have found is that the first 90% of autonomy uh, was, uh, I guess, the relatively easy part. It, it, as a, uh, you know, someone who's not a scientist or not an engineer, I think it's, it's simple, simplifying for me to say. Um, but when you talk about urban environments and robo taxis and the ability to navigate areas like San Francisco, um, where there's a, really an infinite number of variables that are needed to take into account to, to create a safer driving experience than one would have if it was a human driving, um, it, it's proven to be a, a massive, massive challenge. And I, and I think if we've seen that from some of the um, uh, some of the steps that GM has had to take recently with crews as it relates to, to uh, almost shutting down the program and, and taking a step back from a growth perspective uh, relative to original ambitions. Um, in 20, uh, you know, before the pandemic, Elon Musk was talking about a million robo-taxis available uh, for Tesla owners. Uh, if you had owned a Tesla, it was going to become a robo-taxi. Um, within a, a year and a half or so, obviously that, that didn't take place at all. Um, and in fact, those cars are now uh, five years older than they were before. So we're talking about those cars, those, those cars potentially being sold and, and new new vehicles being bought that, that don't necessarily have that promise that, um, that was offered uh, five years earlier. So autonomy really taking a step back. However, the implementation of active safety measures such as um, automatic emergency braking and and um, and radar. Basically, the, your bumpers now a, a for a new car is a um, uh, is a very expensive uh, sensor. Um, you know that adoption I think is making the vehicles significantly more safe. It's also impacting areas like um, the collision market where uh, vehicles are being uh, labeled as totaled um, considerably earlier than they ever would have been in their life cycle because the cost to repair a bumper is now in the thousands because of all of this technology for active safety that is that is in uh, in that, that part of the vehicle, both front and back. Another big trend within the industry is consolidation by large corporations. You mentioned earlier that there's approximately 17,000 dealerships in the U.S. And a lot of these large companies like AutoNation, Lithia, and Penske have been consolidating them. But 
What does this mean for the auto industry overall? And I guess, what does it mean for the consumer? Are we getting better deals because of this consolidation? Well, uh, when lar what larger corporations have done, like AutoNation and Penske in particular, on the, the volume side, so not necessarily in the, the world of uh, premium vehicles, but certainly within um, uh, the, uh, the Toyotas, the Hondas, the, the GMs and, and Fords, et cetera, is um, they've gone to a no-haggle pricing model in a lot of cases, and so consumers are going into dealerships now, and the price is the price. And I think that that has created a better buying experience for consumers than um, the experiences that you or I spoke to uh, earlier on this um, um, on this recording, where you know you go in and you feel like you know, you're, you're dealing with a seller that knows more than you do, and and you come out feeling that that the, the experience was gross. Um, what what the consolidation of that dealer uh, industry and you know. If you go back 10 years, that 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 dealer number was in the, the 20,000 range, um, or I guess now 15 years ago, uh, in in that 20,000 range. Um, that consolidation, I think, is creating a better user experience than um, than than consumers would have otherwise had in the past. You're getting more locations to service your vehicle, um, and you are um, you are having a, uh, um, a a really more professionally run organization um, get uh, better standard operating procedures. So I, I think it's been, generally speaking, a, uh, a positive for um, um, for the, the consumer experience. At the same time, in a lot of cases, um, dealerships are really entrepreneurial, are really entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial industry. Sorry about that. But, um, you know, you've got, you've got owners that are, that are very smart owners. In a lot of cases, when this consolidation takes place, um, Alithia will say, you've been a great owner for a long time. We're just going to help you from an operating perspective, but go out and run your business the way you see fit. You raised some interesting points there, but I have to admit, I have a real love-hate relationship with these dealerships. I love going in and checking out the new models, but I hate the whole negotiating process because that still goes on with a lot of dealerships. And I always feel like I'm getting screwed over and there's always like five, 10 or 20 different additional fees that they add on, additional taxes. And so you never know what the real cost is. And then they're always pitch, pitching you on other features like tire insurance, for example. But as a consumer, how do I know I'm getting a good deal? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think what's happening now is that um, so much of the process of buying a new car or used car is able to be done online beforehand. And so um, you're getting uh, a lot of that transparency that you never had before when you are uh, going shopping as a, as a consumer. And, and that is really up and down the spectrum of whether it's a, um, whether it's a brand new car or whether it is a 10-year-old vehicle that's being sold at a CarMax um, where you're getting 30 different high resolution pictures about a vehicle. You're getting a Carfax incident report from any major accidents that the vehicle has had over the course of its life cycle. Um, you're getting better information about, you know, you mentioned um, tire and wheel insurance, which um, depending on where you live uh, can be a very valuable investment um, in, in your car um, and in other places where, um, you know, it, 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 uh, it isn't a concern, um, is a waste of money. Um, 
So, you know, to your point, every five years or so, a consumer goes in to buy a new car. And um, what I think has happened is that if someone had gone in five years ago, their experience would be uh, maybe a little bit, a little bit less cozy than than, than, it, than it is now. But there, there's uh, there's a lot more transparency now, and I think that that's positive for the consumer. Uh, and and I think it's generally speaking positive for the dealerships in that you know while they um, while they may be losing a couple of dollars on the margin that that they might have squeezed out of out of a consumer um, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Um, having that better experience is leading to greater customer retention, and, and that's really what a dealer wants, particularly as it relates to uh, parts and service. You know, you, they want a customer walking out thinking that they had a, a great experience at the dealership so that when it's time for everything from major repairs to a car to oil changes to, um, to, to um, anything from a repair and maintenance perspective, that they want to go back to that dealership and, and because they were treated fairly. So you're suggesting before I go in and buy a new car or a used car, I spend a few hours online just trying to determine what the correct price is. You can actually get almost all of your transaction done online now. Um, and really, depending on where you live uh, in the U.S., and this is on a state-by-state -state basis, um, you can get the entire transaction completed with you knowing exactly what everything means, knowing what, act, what exactly what you're buying. Um, some states still require actually ink on paper as it relates to, to signatures, but um, I think you know you're able to spend as much or as little time um, examining what uh, what you are uh, what you're buying uh, more than you ever could before. So the other aspect to this whole process is uh, parts and service. Yeah, you, know, you always get those notifications on your car saying, "Okay, you're at 500 miles or whatever the number is. You got to bring it in for a, a maintenance." And then you go in there and next thing you know, it's like 500 bucks or a thousand bucks for, you know, basic maintenance. Right. Uh, I'm curious, what are the gross margins associated with that aspect of the business? Yeah. So that's, that's about half of a, of a dealer's profit that they're making through roughly 13% of the sales of, of the, uh, the dealership. Um, and margins can be up in the, in the 50% range. Um, so, you know, there's, there's an attached rate that comes with uh, that zero to five year old car where a lot of the, the engine work that's going to get done is, is, is protected by warranty. Um, and then, you know, there's, there are, there's an entire ecosystem of good, better, best from a, a, a parts perspective and um, from a, uh, from a cost perspective. So, um, you know, that's, Partially why, you know, once a, once a vehicle is out of that zero to 5% um, age range, you're, you're going to the independent aftermarket. You're going to find the, um, the up and down the street garages to get your vehicle fixed because the prices at a dealership are, are what they are. They're, they're considerably more expensive. And, um, you know, that's, there's a massive industry out there that exists to, um, uh, to help consumers uh, who don't want to pay that. So as you know, the economy, the U.S. economy is very strong, growing at 5% annualized. The jobless rate is very low. CPI is coming down. And when we look at all these different aspects of the auto industry, including new sales, used sales, and all the different trends that we just spoke about, where is the auto industry going in 2024? And what does it mean for the overall economy? 
Yeah, I think it'll be a relatively healthy year for the industry. And if we think about the various parts of that ecosystem that we talked about, the automakers will have a relatively good year. They still want to put a little more uh, inventory on dealer lots. There will probably be some um, some negative pricing because um, that inventory will uh, will come with with a gross margin impact that'll be lower um, than this past year. Um, but still, it's still a very good year um, uh, for for the broader industry. Um, the used market is going to be in a year of transition still as um, that zero to zero to five year old or zero to three year old car population repopulates. Um, and we just simply need to sell more new cars to, to populate that, that, uh, that, that industry three or four years later. Um, the automotive aftermarket should have a relatively decent year. Uh, obviously, you know, that, that aftermarket supports that 290 million unit car population that uh, comes with uh, consumers of, uh, of every cohort of, um, of the income uh, bracket. So, um, you know, what, what would concern me at the margin is, is affordability of parts for, uh, for that aftermarket. Um, we're about a halfway through a winter here um, where, uh, you know, harsh winters have a um, really big impact on uh, on vehicle maintenance, and so uh, we'll see what happens um, over the course of the next six weeks or so. Uh, from a, uh, a personal standpoint, I hope it's a very mild winter, but from a, an investor standpoint, uh, cold and icy winters are excellent for some of the stocks that we invest in. So we'll we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, so I would say 2024 shaping up to be a relatively decent year for the industry. Um, Vehicle affordability remains at the top of my list of concerns, as does, um, from a, a broader perspective, geopolitical uh, impacts on on Asia and and, and Europe from um, the uh, from the perspective of some of the, these global suppliers that we cover. Um, but it should be relative in, in the U.S. It should be relatively decent here. So, just to summarize all that, as it stands right now, there's no concern for you with the auto industry, and there's no you don't see any slowdown in the U.S. economy from from all the data you look at. There, there's always concern. I I never ever ever sleep well on anything. Anything I'm always looking for what you know. We're value investors, right? We look we look down before we look up. Um, but right now, I think we're we're in a, a we're in decent shape um, with uh, you know some cracks on the vehicle affordability, um, rising rates starting to have a, a bit of an impact. Um, but you know, I, I would say things, things could certainly be worse. And one of the other questions I'm always faced with when I'm looking at a new car, is it better to buy or lease? Uh, well, leasing, leasing availability is actually coming back a little bit. You saw the automakers and their, their captive finance companies pull back on leasing, um, when used vehicle prices went through the roof, um, in 2021 and 2020, 20, uh, 2022, um, I would say if you are a consumer that's going to put uh, 12,000 miles on your uh, on your vehicle or 18,000 kilometers, um, you are um, in a in a good place from a leasing perspective. If you're someone that does uh, a lot of driving, uh, like I do, uh, and I think like you do, um, then you know ultimately leasing probably isn't, isn't for you. But there are people that, that love the, the leasing experience. Every three years, they get a new car. And um, it's one of the reasons why it's 
it's over 50% typically of what uh, Mercedes and BMW uh, do every year. And given everything you said right now for the consumer, from a consumer point of view, is it a good time to buy a car? Uh, well, if you're uh, if you're of the opinion that um, that uh, uh, rates are going to be dropping in the next six months and you're able to, to wait, then, you know, waiting might not be a bad idea. Um, I'd expect, though, that commensurate with that, the price of the car that you have uh, right now is also going to going to depreciate as well. So um, I think it's a decent time to buy a, a new car, certainly maybe not as good as it was five years ago um, when rates were much lower, um, but a, uh, a decent time. And there's some really exciting technology that's going to be a lot different than, um, than what you had seven or eight years ago in the last car you bought. Brian, as we wrap up, if an investor would like to hear more about your thoughts on the auto industry or learn more about Gabelli funds, where can they go? Um, they can go to gabelli.com uh, where they can see a list of our uh, open and closed end funds. Um, additionally, we do have a large uh, separately managed account business. Um, so uh, they can contact us there, but we are, uh, our website is gabelli.com uh, and um, certainly any um uh, any auto-related questions um, that can can be uh, can be put through the, the general website as well. So um, I appreciate uh, your uh, you're giving me the opportunity to uh, to speak uh, to speak our own church here. No, that was a great overview, and I learned a lot about it because, like I said, I have my concerns about this whole industry when I go in to buy a car. But sure. anyhow, I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today, and I look forward to our next discussion. Oh, thank you very much for having me, and uh, and really appreciate the opportunity to to uh, to talk about what uh, what gets me excited. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Brian Sponheimer, and you have a better understanding of the auto industry and how it impacts the overall economy. If you have any suggestions on who you would like to see interviewed on Wealthion, let us know in the comments section below. One of the reasons we do these interviews is to help you determine what's happening in the economy and how the economy might have an impact on your financial future. And if you need understanding in how to prepare for your future, consider having a discussion with a Wealthion endorsed financial advisor at Wealthion.com. There's no obligation to work with any of these advisors. It's a free service that Wealthion offers to all of its viewers. Once again, thank you for being with us today, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.